0: The Rural Health Voice, Episode 10 Black Church Food Security. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. Do churches have a responsibility for the physical health of their members? Reverend Dr. Herbert Brown III a community organizer, social entrepreneur, and senior pastor of Pleasant Hope Baptist Church, joined me to discuss how churches and other members of the faith-based community can address health on a very local level. Welcome to the Rural Health Voice.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Reading off your website, in 2015, you launched the Black Church Food Security Network, which combats food insecurity by helping historic African-American congregations establish or expand gardens on their church-owned land. Tell me why a minister decides to start gardening.
1: <laughs> good, good question. I mean, other than the fact that the very first book of the Bible lays foundation for God creating a man and giving that man a job to be a gardener, and then the themes of gardening and agriculture and soil and our relationship with land being found throughout Holy Scripture. On top of that, I, um, some years ago, began noticing many of my congregation members were in the hospital because of diet-related issues. And while seminary had taught me Uh, a lot about visiting people in the hospital and how to give an encouraging word and what scriptures to read and what prayers to pray. After a while, um, I became dissatisfied with just giving prayer and scripture and leaving people to fend for themselves when it came to their diet related challenges. So that's where the idea came for uh, us to start growing food on our land. We wanted to um, make Healthy, fresh produce available. And we wanted to do it in such a way that um, kept our dignity intact. So I didn't want to go about like food charity initiatives that I don't think are sustainable anyway. And, you know, ch- charity is awesome, important, and needed, but charity is not justice. And so we wanted to go a different path. And so that's why we started growing our own food and making it available to our congregation members. And we've seen many positive results as a result of us uh, starting to grow food about now seven years ago now.
0: Again, from your website, the network also links Black churches and Black farmers in the Mid-Atlantic region to create a, what you call a community-controlled alternative food system based mm-hmm. on self-sufficiency and Black Food, Land, and Sovereignty. Tell me how the, all that works.
1: Yeah, at, at its essence, it's a supply chain. It's a food value chain um, operation where, you know, I realized that not only did um, people in my congregation and community struggle because of food inequity, but I also realized that the food system um made things pretty tough to say the least for small family farmers. And so when I went uh, down South, uh, my family roots are in North Carolina and Virginia. And while down there doing some visiting and and taking care of some things, I was blessed to meet um, a whole bunch of farmers, a community of African-American farmers. And they took me to their farms and I saw, for instance, fresh produce going to spoil in the fields um, because those farmers did not have outlets and markets to sell what they had grown. And so here I had on one hand farmers with fresh food going bad in the field. And on the other hand, a community up north that needed fresh food and didn't have places to get it from. And so we began the bridge work of connecting the rural South with the inner city and us meeting each other's needs. The farmers get a niche market up north, and the communities up north get fresh produce grown from down south. And it's an exciting and inspiring project for uh, us to be a part of.
0: That's wonderful. Why do you feel this project is particularly important in African-American
1: communities? Well, so often the relationship between African-Americans and land is rigidly confined to slavery. That if it's, you know, when you're talking about Black people and land, you're talking about slavery, right? And that conversation kind of stays either mentally in that frame or in the presentation in that frame. But we need to broaden that out. That um, Africa descended people have had a long relationship with the land and with nature, and there are histories that are uh, yet to be written, and there are books being written right now. For instance, Monica White has an awesome book out now called *Freedom Farmers*, where she talks a lot about the history of farming in the African community outside of the context of chattel slavery. Uh, Leah Peniman, in her awesome book. Um, uh, as well, talks about um, farming in the African-American community. And I think that it's important to highlight and emphasize uh, the ways in which these stories, I mean, Farming While Black, the Leah Penniman's writing about, uh, in her book rather, just came out recently, and many others who are writing these histories. So I think it's important that uh, we place spotlight on these narratives and I think it's important that the African-American community um, sees pathways to uplift and strengthen ourselves as we get closer to the land once more.
0: Now, from what I can see, the network spans Maryland, Washington, D.C., Virginia, North Carolina. How many churches and farms do you currently have participating?
1: We have about uh, 15 churches in the Baltimore metro area. And there's a coalition of farmers, primarily in North Carolina, but we have two in Virginia as well. No, there's um, maybe five in Virginia as well, whose numbers I can't even fully grasp. But there's an amazing coalition down south called the Coalition for Healthier Eating in Bethel, North Carolina, right outside of Greenville. And we have been blessed to partner with them last year in getting this food value chain partnership up and going. And uh, it's so many farmers down there and they're they're growing, feels like every month we get more farmers and more churches saying, hey, I want to be a part of it. To tell you the truth, Beth, the real challenge is us growing the organizational capacity to keep up with the demand. People all over, bishops, pastors, farmers. This is an idea that makes sense in so many people's minds and they enthusiastically want to be a part of it. They want to support it. I have uh, nutritionists and dietitians that want to do classes. I got herbalists doing classes in our churches. Um, the great thing about food is that it sets a wide and broad table. And so once the vision is clear, people come alongside to say, I can see myself helping in this way. And so, yeah, the main challenge for us is not trying to drum up support and partnership the main challenge for us is getting the p- folks in place in our organization to help manage this amazing and inspiring growth
0: lots of logistics going on there
1: layers of it I- <laughs> yeah
0: So so you're talking about all the people who are supportive and want to jump on board. Uh, But I know in in nonprofit organizations, we have what we call mission creep, where a group decides to do something either because it sounds interesting or there's grant funds available. Maybe it doesn't quite fall in line with the purpose of the group. Have you had any pushback? Do, Do people see the connection between caring for physical health in addition to caring for spiritual health?
1: Yeah, no pushback. I mean, people see it. People see it. And um, I mean, it's interesting that you raise that question because it is a part of our job to stay with laser precision on the unique thing that we bring to the table. I mean, sometimes I think about it like we are helping to put an interface in place and there are um, there's a lane in all of this where the Black Church Food Security Network uh, shows up best. Uh, It's it's our zone of genius. Beyond that, um, I'm very good and we are very good at setting the stage for other groups or people uh, to uh, plug in uh, at a different spoke in this wheel. And so I, I don't necessarily feel burdened to try to do everything. We know what we do well. We help churches reimagine their resources, their church kitchens, their land, their church buses that sit in their parking lots, those parking lots that sit empty Monday through Saturday, those classrooms that they have that outside of Sunday are not utilized or are underutilized. We help churches to reimagine their existing resources to meet community needs. We help farmers to see churches as niche markets where we can set up many farmers markets inside of churches on days when they worship. That's what we do, and it's what we do well. There are many other pieces of this that we think are wonderful ideas, but we're not going to do it. We're going to set the stage for the other people to come in and do it or the other other organization to come in and do it. And we know that it will help the bigger vision, but that v- bigger vision is not ours to bite alone.
0: Great. Now, I first heard of you when I attended the Virginia Farm to Table Conference where you were a speaker. And you made a statement that I thought was so profound, I immediately wrote it down and posted on Facebook. And I gave you credit, I promise. <laughs> but I want to make sure I didn't forget it. You said, it is more important to use our church land to feed people than it is to make the land look pretty to feed our egos. Tell me more about that statement.
1: Yes, I mean, so much, um, as a pastor, I've been pastoring now for going on 11 years. And a part of the way I'm wired, um, is, uh, to, to look at the practical value of all that we're doing. So I'm a believer, as my, one of my professors used to say in seminary, Dr. Jerome Ross, he would say, I'm a believer and a realist. The two are not the same. And so with that, uh, mindset in place, when I look at our grounds as a church and I look at the amount of money that we spend each year to make those grounds, uh, um, manage those grounds and to make it look good, I ask the question, what ultimate purpose is, is all of that achieving? What, what mission is it um, embracing When we spend the money and I sit in trustee meetings where we go over the church finances and I see the amounts of money that we're utilizing to keep the grounds looking good. And I ask the question, what what is it for? And for a lot of people, whether we say this or not, for a lot of church folk, a lot of pastors and religious leaders, you know, making sure the church looks good from the outside is important. For one, because we want to you know we want to represent God well. So when people look at our building and look at our grounds, they're more apt to have a positive, favorable feeling about God because we are attempting to represent God well. But I raise the question, what if we can represent God better by utilizing everything God has given us to be a blessing to the people that we say we're in community with? I think that God would want us to embrace and reach for a higher purpose than aesthetics, than uh, a beautiful landscape. Um, And so that is why we, you know, that's why I said what I said in terms of, you know, it makes us feel good as pastors. Our ego is stroked when people look at the building and see the big, beautiful steeple and they see the beautiful, well-manicured lawn. Yeah, That feels good. Sure. But is it really lining up with a higher purpose and a greater mission? Uh, Probably not. And so that's why I think and believe, as a um, theological point, that God will want us to do more and better with what we have. Every square inch of this church building that I'm sitting in right now, I'm thinking every day about how more of it can be utilized to be a blessing for people in this day and time.
0: Feed my sheep in a very literal sense.
1: Very little sense, yeah.
0: (laughs) When people think about farming and gardening, they tend to envision a rural setting, but you aren't rural, are you?
1: No, no, no. We're right near the Mason-Dixon line in Baltimore City, Maryland. And uh, while a lot of our members uh, are from points down south, um, we are definitely a city church.
0: So has there been a different response to the project in rural or urban, suburban settings?
1: Well, it's it's been interesting because, you know, as I work with congregations in the South, they have far more land on average than what we have in the cities. And also being in an environment that is more agrarian and has a closer relationship with agriculture, it doesn't take long at all for... Our congregations down south and folks down south to see the significance of agriculture doesn't take long at all. Um, they raise different questions are raised, different issues, and different logistics come to come into play though. When I'm talking to and connecting with our rural partners, um, you know ha- how how do you have the infrastructure in place to manage the kind of land that we're talking about down south? For example, there's a church in. Uh, Virg- Central Virginia, um, which is not the deep, deep south, but it, it's below the below the line. But there's a church that has 300 acres of land. They have 300 acre. That church owns 300 acres. And so when you talk about growing on that kind of land, you better have all your ducks lined up in a row. You better have your, your resources in place, your partners on point, the congregation fully buying in and um, really thinking well down the line about how the seeds you plant in that kind of acreage are going to yield benefits to that congregation and those beyond that congregation as well. And so I enjoy problem solving around those kinds of things and getting churches to um, uh, dream together and imagine how how they steward well the immense land that they have, for example. But at its base, the issue of food and the issue of health, um, we're going to find that whether in the city or in rural America, while the manifestation of it might look different at its essence, uh, there are similar challenges and um, related opportunities as well.
0: Has there been any resistance to the project, maybe from, I don't know, farmers markets that felt like this was competition?
1: No, farmers markets, um, you know, they do their thing. Um, We are such a niche market. I mean, as you could tell, as you've been on our website, we are locked in and zoned in on historically African-American congregations. And for many of those in my church and many other congregations that we're connected to, they're not going to farmers markets anyway. Um, a lot of farmers' markets happen during church time. We're in worship when the farmers' market is going on, and by the time we get out of church, the farmers' market's done or about done. So it's not farmers' markets. I will say though, uh, Beth, that um, um, other food uh, food justice organizations, food access initiatives, initially didn't know how to relate to us. They didn't know how 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 to connect with our work. Um, because I think in part, because we take a very asset based based approach to addressing food inequity in the black community. We're not starting with the narrative that we see all too often about, you know, this black community is a quote unquote food desert. And this African-American community has these kind of health challenges. All of that, you know, may be true to different degrees. But we don't start there. That's not our starting point for our organization. Our starting point is this is what we have in our hands already. These are the resources that we have already. Here are the people that are already on board. How can we take what we already have to do what we need to do for the sake of our health? Uh, And that's physical health, economic health and well-being, et cetera. How do we do that? And so I think that because we start from an asset based approach, and so many food access and food justice organizations start with the deficit based approach there was some there was some um, uh, unease uneasiness and just not knowing how to connect with our organization uh, when we first started out
0: now if people are concerned about health and health care in their communities what step do you think they should take
1: well in the same spirit uh, of what I shared I think it's great to do an assessment of what you already have in your community. Resist the temptation to look beyond your community for solutions to the problems of your local neighborhood. I'm not saying that solutions or inspiring ideas don't exist beyond your neighborhood, but oftentimes we can overlook what is right under our noses. The, the things that already have energy, that have buy-in, the places where people are already gathered um, those can be important and powerful uh, beginning ingredients to uh, whipping up something that's going to be a sustainable solution for uh, yourself and your community. And I really want to emphasize the word sustainable. Um, many times when you got a grant funded project or uh, initiative, that grant is for a period of time. And unless that organization finds ways to fund that work beyond the grant cycle or beyond that grant period, then that program is likely to end when the money runs out. And so I think it's a good thing to look within first to see what's already being supported, to see what already has energy, where again, where the buy-in is, and see what you can do to daisy chain together. The stuff that's already working in your community, because it presents a greater likelihood that it's going to be able to be sustained uh, beyond yourself and beyond that initial moment.
0: And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in America?
1: Woo! If I could do anything, anything. okay, yeah, I would. I would. Um, I would lean in even more to energizing and mobilizing faith-based organizations across the country. I think there's just untapped resources and energy available uh, across the country. And while my focus is on the African-American church in particular, um, in this comment, I'm talking about synagogues and I'm talking about temples and mosques. I think that overlooking the faith-based community when it comes to health in America is a grave mistake. And similarly, when we just look at faith-based communities um, as uh, uh, sites for charity, I think that's also a mistake. I think there's systemic solutions found in our faith-based, or there's at least systemic potential found in our faith-based communities across the country. And I'm talking rural America, inner-city America, Midwest, West Coast, East Coast. Our faith communities are found in every neighborhood of every economic status, every racial background, uh, every educational uh, level. You can find a faith-based organization somewhere. And if I could do anything, I would continue to, I would look at ways to continue feeding the energy of getting these organizations together. I'm grateful for so many people like Nuria Parish and, and so many others who are doing amazing work with organizing um, their communities of faith, faith rather. And I think even more of that can be helpful. And when we do that, when we connect the faith-based organizations to impact health, It'll matter less if there's a Democrat or a Republican in office. It'll matter less if there's a certain piece of legislation that's passed or not. There's some stuff we can do ourselves in rural America, in inner city America. And I'm excited to be alive in a time when those kind of dreams and imaginations are being born and growing.
0: Beautiful. I love it. All right. Well, thank you for joining me today, sir.
1: Thank you so much.
0: That's Reverend Brown encouraging communities to look to each other to address health issues locally. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, you can join VRHA to receive our weekly electronic newsletter and other important information. Visit VRHA.org and click the membership tab for details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.